writing poetry as falling through the shame portal. Because often it's like the words come out of a place where you don't want to like them, but you do. You don't want to be interested in them, but you are somehow, and you can't stop yourself, but, oh, and you gotta fall into it and just let the poem go. Welcome to Darken the Page, a podcast for lovers of writing and the creative process. And now, here's your host, Dave Buda. Welcome to Darken the Page. Today's episode is really interesting. Today we have two poets on um, named Brick and Gatewood and Henry Jack, and they both write and perform in the bard tradition. And I actually learned a lot for myself about what the bard tradition is and how that's different from from slam poetry and what it's really all about. And so what you'll hear today is really an uh, exploration of what I consider the like this romantic way of of writing and performing words and poetry. And some great quotes. One of the one I really enjoyed was the beginning of art is when you resist the mold. You'll also hear Henry Jack talk about uncommodifying yourself, which I think is one of the most perfect ways to talk about a lot of the things that we do to sell out. And he talks about uncommodifying yourself. I love the simplicity of that, and we get into that too. So make sure you check out darkenthepage.com slash 021 for the show notes. Uh, there's a lot of really amazing authors mentioned in this podcast as well. So without further ado, here's Brooking and Henry Jack. Hello, welcome back to Darken the Page. I am here with two of my good friends, Brooking Gatewood and Henry Jack, and they are poets. And they are poets of the bard tradition. I should play like masterpiece theater music now or something. Uh, but thanks for joining the show today, and I'm really excited to talk about poetry. So are we. Thanks yeah. for having us. So explain, just to start, uh, what is this whole bard thing? Do you guys dress funny? Um, and how did, how did you get into it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We got into it because we were both very geeky about poetry and also about body energy and movement arts, dance and the like. We met at a dance party and realized we were poets. And how, how did how did you realize you were poets at a dance party? Was there like a, a moment? Yeah, it was actually we sort of looked at each other and it was literally the the follow-up conversation was so I bet you're a nerd about some of the same things I'm a nerd about. And we said, list your top five <laughs> and his a... you know, chemistry and things like that. Yeah. And mine is system science. And, you know, both of us have a professional life, but then the shared one was poetry. And so we said, okay, let's get together and explore that. Yeah. Nice. Nice. I think there's a lot of people taking notes right now. That's I'm going to say that to this next, the next <laughs> two great person I meet. Yeah. 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 Nice. But it was a little bit of a tribal identification in the nerd tribe. And <laughs> then we, uh, we don't, we dove into the bard tradition because it, it just sort of happened between us in that we were sharing our poems to one another and realizing that we were rolling on a much more embodied kind of reading than your average standing at the front of a classroom and sharing a poem, mm -hmm. which is a recitation of sorts. That's not how we were doing it. And, and then the, the exploration kind of evolved from there. But yeah. we, we read a lot of, uh, we read a lot of, what was that? What was that book that we read early on? Shaman's body. There was a shaman's body and then the, the Abe, David Abrams. Oh book. Yeah. Yeah, so some influences that um, the David Abrams, who wrote this incredible book called The Spell of the Sensuous, and it's all about the history of language from a pre-writing perspective, and he talks a lot about the impact of the written word on how we perceive the world around us, and nice. that 
before we had the written word, um, words were literally, there were so many more words were onomatopoetic and there was a direct association between landscape and body and sound and word. Ah, I just got totally interested in that book. That's great. David Abrams, Spell of the Sensuous. Yeah. 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 Spell of the Sensuous. And for me, it was one of those sort of explosive brain opening books and made a lot of sense too, because there was this sort of, it sort of lit up my soul, you know, in a way that your average academic book you read in college doesn't. And yeah, and and there's a, bother, a bunch of others. But then we had both also been really into Keats and Wordsworth and the Romantic tradition. And I had a love affair with Latin poets and as in like the Latin language that yeah. I'd studied in high school. And it's rare to find someone in your California dance party crowd that also has that level of interest in those sorts of poets. So. Yeah, I, I took classical Greek in high school and I... And so I, I, one of the things I did was translate the Odyssey and that, I mean, think about the Odyssey. That's like, I translated it in Latin. That's like a, a, that's like a 400 page book. And that was transmitted from bard to bard in a pre written language world. Wow. So they just knew that thing cold and they knew it in their bodies and it's, and, it, and it's all it was all poetry, right? It's not like just a story, right? You're saying it's yeah. it's not prose. It is an andropoment and a pamusa polutropon hasmalapala, you know, pompe page. You know, it just goes on and on and on with the iambic pentameter. Wow. <laughs> and are you, so, do they actually? I mean, you may not know this, but do they do they memorize that? How did that actually work? I mean, was it? They, they took it in. Yeah. Yeah. They literally code it in their body, and there's. There's one technique they use where they have sort of an imaginary um, building or castle at the time might have been the appropriate building. And they Uh would code different parts of the stories to different rooms in the castle. So there's this sort of mental image way of memorizing that still gets taught in psychology classes today but if you think about it they're also mapping it in their own body and that that imaging is is a metaphor for how we code things in our own body and Andrew and I discovered as we were working through our poems uh, one thing people ask about a lot is the editing process and we don't edit the way that most people edit I would say is a poem comes through you and then you feel it through your body and if it gets stuck somewhere in your body, then there's something off in the poem. Ooh, nice. And so we started realizing that both of us do this and that we could we could read and share to each other in this way. And in all honesty, it actually becomes somewhat sexual in the sense that somebody is receiving and mm. the the speaker is penetrating and so there's that aspect, but it also has a healing component. And when we let ourselves really open to the transmission that can move through a poem, it's it's kind of like going to see a healer. And, you know, sometimes you cry in the middle or something needs to move or shake or release. Mm-hmm. You might get up and move your body around in a different way. And so there's just this cultivating a sense of how to let the poem move through the body that became part of our dynamic. And so then we got really curious, how can we share this with others? Yeah, this is really good. We should put it in a bottle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A potion. <laughs> yeah. So uh, tell me how you ended up sharing it or what, what you guys end up doing with we all are, this stuff. We are called the Bards Night Out, and that's what we do. We are bards, and we have a night out, which is actually a night in. We have house concerts, and at our house concerts, we perform a set or a couple of sets, and we go back and forth, but we share poems. Most of them we memorize and share, and sometimes sometimes some poems want to be read, but we... We go and uh, we just give our we give our performance, and then we invite other people to take it in as well. We invite other people to uh, to read or share, and we can. And so we we really go off of the idea that um, 
when you find your own voice, you immediately inspire other people to find theirs. Mm -hmm. And yeah. when he sees you being totally authentic and off the hook and real and feeling something, laying it bare and sharing it, they immediately go to the place where, oh, I have something there to share too. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so we try to inspire that in the people who were, who were there. And then we, we basically, uh, we allow people to speak uh, in an open mic. So that, that's, that's our format. And we've done, I don't know, we've done a few shows in the last year. We've been doing this for a while. Yeah, and we've also been experimenting. So the how do we do this was we've had different trials with it. Oh, yeah. Another thing we so, did was, um, and, I, and this was a big project, and we'll probably do it again, but it's – the body is also the landscape and a lot of these romantic poets and these, um, the, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey, these readings were done outside in place. Even sometimes today, if you go to a Shakespeare show outside in nature, it has such a different feel to it. So we did a tour through um, this really beautiful historic cemetery in my neighborhood in Oakland. And we mm -hmm. read people different poems at different places along the way, generally on the topic of grief. Mm. And so we took people through this landscape and the poems chosen for the different places were, were chosen both for the emotional ride of the day, but also for what wants to be read in this particular space. Nice. To these people. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so tell me a little now, so here you are out doing it, performing, getting these events together, writing the poetry and doing all that. Um, where did you come from with this? Has it all has, po has writing poetry like always been easy for you guys? Did you go through maybe a period of not really knowing how to do this or, or having to, to face some challenges? I would love to hear a little about kind of your journey to get here. Maybe, you know, individually, okay. I suppose. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah, I'll go first. Mine's completely different. I am a scientist by training and I, appreciated good writing growing up, but never considered myself to be a writer. And it wasn't, it wasn't until my thirties that I was, um, I was very depressed and I, you know, was scouring, you know, the various kinds of transformational worlds and psychological literatures and self-help world, all of that looking to, you know, set myself straight. And the place that, the place that I found the most truth coming at me was in the romantic poets and, and Coolridge especially, but also Shelley, um, just really knocked me out in terms of their ability to just precisely lay down the experience of, let's call it the darkness of the human soul. Mm -hmm. And that kind of coming into me influenced my journal reading such that or journal writing such that at one point my my journaling just started coming out as a prose poem mm -hmm. and then I was like, whoa this is poetry and I could try to do this with verse okay let's see what that feels like Mm -hmm. And it was just literally like walking into a dark room. And, uh, you know, Pablo Neruda talks about deciphering that fire. And I, for me, it wasn't so much a fire thing. It was a, it, it was more of just like feeling my way into the dark and slowly, slowly becoming comfortable there. Mm, nice. So that was a couple of years ago, but um, it, it's you know it's it just unfolds slowly over time. Mm -hmm. The Neruda line, that poem that he was just referencing, I want to share it because it's so beautiful. Yeah. 
and it speaks creative process. I imagine everybody who's listening will appreciate this. And something ignited in my soul, fever or unremembered wings. And I went my own way, deciphering that burning fire. And I wrote the first bare line, bare, without substance, pure foolishness, pure wisdom of one who knows nothing. And suddenly, I saw the heavens unfastened and open. Hmm. Nice. So what does that yeah. mean? What does that what did that mean for you? Yeah, so for me it's it's sort of different. It's like um I started writing when I was five. I mean it was just sort of always been my way of communicating with the world. And mm. I remember my sister left for college when I was little and it was devastating for me and I would write her poems on giant pieces of paper in, you know, colored markers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was just how I communicated. And uh, in high school, I, I got really geeky about it. And if I look through my old high school journals, I was constantly assessing the, the, um, the different kinds of poetic devices and the way that I was using meter and whether my assonance and consonance was right. And I sort of did a lot of my learn the technical tools when I was a teenager and just crazy passionate about it mm -hmm. and then something happened in my ego development where my poetry just became painfully self-reflective you know probably around the age of 16 17 mm -hmm. and although some of the stuff I wrote when I was 14 was actually beautiful so it's kind of been an interesting ride and I stepped back from it for many years just being a little disgusted with the way that poetry was coming out of my young late teens early 20s brain mm -hmm. and yeah, and I was just reading an old journal yesterday, in fact, and I, I was probably 23, and I, I said in this journal, I know that there's a poet in me. I know that it's sort of my, my truth and the way, something I have to bring to the world, and I just need to get the ego out of the way and keep looking for the muse. So there's sort of this chasing the muse experience, and I let it go for a long time and got deep into my spiritual path and other 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 ways to touch God, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then a couple, two and a half years ago, it was sort of like the heavens unfastened and opened and the muse just started talking to me in a really pure, clear way. And it's been a totally different relationship since. And it's really kind of a love affair is the best way to describe it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It is, is certainly like, my mistress uh, with uh, can be a very cruel mistress and uh, it, it, there's no you know it the words kind of just come through mm -hmm. and depending on how nice you are how willing you are how much in invitation you are you will have different results and sometimes they'll come through and you won't like what they say mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you will not like it you will not want to share a poem you will not think it's good you will not think it's it's you will not think it's socially acceptable that's that dark in the page concept right kind of yeah yeah in, in yeah. the sense it's like well we're our only goal is just to get it on the page it doesn't matter how good it is or how perfect it is yeah yeah yeah, and 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 uh, on, a, on a deeper level, it's like I I talk about writing poetry as falling through the shame portal because often it's like the words come out of a place where you don't want to like them, but you do. You don't want to be interested in them, but. You are somehow, and you can't stop yourself, but, oh, and you got to fall into it and just mm. let the poem go. And when, when you, when you, when you finish it, if you don't like it, you can throw it away. Yeah. But sometimes those things that were a little uncomfortable to get out of your body, 
wind up having all kinds of wisdom. Mm. Mm-hmm. And not all philosophers are poets, but all poets become philosophers. Mm. Yeah. So, Brooking, you mentioned something I want to ask about. You said, okay, for you, it's about listen. You know, said <clears throat> two and a half years ago, you know, you had this kind of awakening, and you and you got you got to hear the muse. You got to hear the the words coming. And so, what would you say to someone that say is like, you know, that's that's struggling? That's like they're like, hey, I'm I'm here, and the muse isn't talking to me, and it's really hard. And what do I do? And and because it sounds like this is this is a very passive approach in a lot of ways. So what what can uh, people do, or what what you know what have you learned? Well, it's interesting. I yeah, I, that's what was so fascinating about going back and looking at these journals. Because the way I had remembered it, I just I remember consciously deciding not to write until it was real. And so I went from writing obsessively to taking a break for a number of years from writing in a very intentional way. And at the same time, every once in a while, it's I, I couldn't help myself, and so I would write. And some of those still came out, mm-hmm. like Andrew was saying, and then you throw it away. But now when I look back at some of those poems, they're actually incredible. I just didn't know how to read them at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of interesting. To me at this point, I no longer think of Muse as just the force that helps you write a poem. It's also, from this bard perspective, it's the force that lets a poem move through you. And to be able to share the poem and read it to an audience or um, share it through your body and perform it in in a more... The performance is is a sort of bigger expression in the body than just reading it over audio like this, for example. Um, but anyway, I see, I see that there's a few different parts of Muse there. And so there's one piece of advice I actually would give is just let it go and let mm-hmm. go of the idea that you're supposed to be practicing and let yourself be moved. Yeah. Just uncommodify yourself. Get get out of your head that you are supposed to be producing something, that you're supposed to be famous for something, that this is all going to mean something and, and people are going to like you for this. Whatever it is that you mm. think you're going to get mm. out of writing – No, you're going to get the experience of shaping your thoughts and leaving them in one place on a page or a screen. That's all you're going to (laughs) get out of it. It reminds me of... I love that, uncommodify yourself. I totally... That that really sums up such... So many things that we do that throw us off. And it's it's so interesting because, you know, a lot of writers will say when you... I'm sure you get this a lot just even with the interviews you've been having or the books you read. Everyone says, you have to have a regular practice. You have to have a regular practice. What's been fascinating for me is I've been experimenting with how I want to engage and listen to this this relationship with Muse is when I, when I insert discipline, it, it's almost like she's like a cat, at least for me. And, and she just walks away and is like, fuck that. Yeah. Um, but when I just set up my life so that if a conversation wants to happen, I can drop what I'm doing and be yep. in that conversation. Mm. Then I'm actually pretty prolific even with a day job, but I have a flexible day job. And yeah, I don't. So, and yeah. and my my situation's different. I create rhythm in my life so that there are regular opportunities where the theater is open and whatever wants to come and perform for me will show up. Nice. But there and things will accumulate and gather in my wanderings and I'm always chewing on poetry. I'm always chewing on somebody's work. Usually I just have like a three, four months like hot relationship <laughs> with one poet. Sometimes two and kind of like battle it out. Ooh, that's hot. Yeah. Yeah. Like last year was T. S. Eliot and Emily Dickinson just going back and forth for months. Wow. And uh, right now it's Sylvia Plath. <laughs> wow. Oh that's Sylvia. Oh Sylvia, whoa. <laughs> um I, I 
I love that. And you know, it's funny what one of the things I've I've noticed here, and this is the twenty something if an interview, um, is that there seems to be two camps and and then there's people who you know, there's you can walk between the camps, but there seems to be two camps and I kinda at this point I'm calling it like the Stephen Pressfield camp and like the spiritual people camp. I don't have any better words for it. But there but to me it's like there's there's a camp that says like it's 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 more of a discipline, you know, make the time, sit down, you know. I remember even this this quote I think Stephen Pressfield said in The Art of War, it's like um you know, one of the writers said, I, I know when my inspiration hits, it hits every morning at eight AM when I sit down at the computer, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's like and then and then there's the other the other camp which is more of like the hey, like you know, be ready when inspiration strikes, and and then go for it. And and I find myself lately, I'm more I'm more in the spiritual camp, for whatever reason. But I think it's it's a really it's really funny because I do notice that it seems like it's one or the other, or it seems like yeah. there is really these two options, and we maybe we go back and forth in our own life or wh- whatever circumstances is going on. But it's yeah, and I want to just—I mean, to me, the one piece I want to add is there's a discipline in designing a life that has space for creativity, and yeah. to me, that's an important point because it's—and and, and you could argue that the creativity has forced me to do that or, or something along those lines. But I do mm-hmm. think one of the reasons I'm hesitant to take a full-time, super intense job is because it is really important to me to be able to give the poem the time and space when it wants to happen. And that's tension because I also enjoy my profession and I could put more of my creative energy there. But so there is a discipline in in the choices to make space for it. But the whole game of do you do it at a certain time or not? I'm I'm totally with you. There's another point there (laughs) and it goes back to uncommodifying yourself, which is that uh, you are talking to two self-identified poets. I don't know anybody that ever made a living as a poet, no matter how good they were. T.S. Eliot worked at a bank. You know, uh, Lord Byron had a lot of money from his family. You know, it, like whatever it is, Emily Dickinson was supported by her family. It, it's it's not something that you just it's not something that you can you can imagine turning into a business unless you're David Wade unless you're David Wade <laughs> so some people manage some amazing things with that and like the lack of ambition the lack of this has to be something this is going to support me and that's different for between poets and working writers Mm -hmm. people who want to sell things to magazines people who want to increase circulation on their blog it's different it's a little bit of a different vibe and there's it's more kind of musical Mm -hmm. yeah so uh, poetry is interesting it's probably the least lucrative of all the arts at least Mm -hmm. that, that we can think of and and of course there is a way to make money that you can the performances or teaching classes and stuff like that. But but writing words on the page and make and writing poetry on a page is an is an extremely difficult way to make money unless you're publishing books, right? And so it, there's almost in a way there's a yeah there's like there's like a sweetness in the resignation of that, you know. Whereas like if I was writing music, well there's a chance I could record the music and sell it. Like that's pretty common, but the truth is just poetry is kind of like so far gone in terms of monetary gain that in, in a way it kind of, it's actually nice. You could just kind of give up and, and, and then just do it for the sake of doing it, which is why you should have been doing it in the first place. Charity. Yeah. yeah there's a purity to it. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, there is, there's a purity to the art form too. Like I can't think of, you know, in, in music and in, in the, the, prose authorship world there is this sort of celebrity sellout conversation and the writing for your audience as a big part of the conversation and I've noticed in my dabbling with blogging recently how how much more intense that was that that part about you are writing for an audience Mm -hmm. and you're having a conversation with 
your fans or your followers. And what's interesting to me about poetry that feels freer is that I'm basically just having a conversation with God. I, I mean, I know that's an overarching word, but it's sort of a vertical orientation. Mm-hmm. And then you share it with other people and it reminds them of their own relationship with spirit or whatever you want to call it. And so there's this, this shared understanding that shows up in poetry in a particular way that, I don't know, it's just, it's really beautiful. And Absolutely. Unique. And it, the other thing, the reason that we draw the distinction about being from the bard tradition is because we are, we are up against something in our culture, which is that the world of poetry has been, I, I will say co-opted by the slam poetry movement. Mm. Lots of love to the slam poetry movement. And that's a different vibe from what we bring. Okay, We're, so tell me about that because I'm familiar with the slam poetry, but tell, yeah, really explain that. Comes out, slam comes out of the hip-hop tradition, which is a different vibration. There's a different voice. There is a more, let's say, there's more of the authoritative, the declamatory voice. They're yeah. like, you know, like Cicero here, where it's like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And yeah. it's a, it's a different vibration and it's a competition mm-hmm. it's yeah. a competition either between two people trying to battle it out or between performers wanting to be the champion um we, we don't we don't really we 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 certainly have egos and we we, we really <laughs> like our words but just as a aesthetic decision we don't want to cultivate a competition kind of atmosphere because there's there i think that inhibits the sacred in the writing and there certainly is um there certainly is a connection to the all that comes through in in my work when i allow it yeah and and i like i like that yeah it's it's just it's different and and there's all sorts of cool things that that slam poetry teaches you and and gets you connected with and and it's nice i do really appreciate you making that distinction um is there a difference let's say i were to read the let's say it was just i was going to see the text of uh slam poets performance versus like a, a bard tradition performance what would i notice in the difference that's a great question um kind of i'm not certain we have enough data points for it and it's a little bit of um it's a little that's that's an interesting that's that's an interesting question we we definitely would how do you let me jump in on that so to me it's i mean you can hear the poem on the page Mm -hmm. um I have a slam poetry style that comes out of me sometimes. I appreciate a lot about the slam tradition. If anybody listening happens to be into sort of Taoist Chinese medicine elements, it's it's got a metal quality to it. Um, And there's a lot Mm -hmm. of sort of downbeat. It's got a rap kind of feel, like you said, a hip hop feel. And sometimes you feel, to me, I feel that when I look at it on a page and there's like a, there's a particular cadence. If you look at, one of Andrew's poems, it's it's just different. I don't know how to describe it. The structure of the poem, it's like the musicality and the meter and the rhythm are different. And and if you look at one of my poems compared to Andrew's poems, there's a whole different feeling inside of it. And they don't always translate perfectly between the vocal performance and what's on the page. Sometimes I'll even have different versions of the same poem for reading and for speaking. Oh, nice. That's a really interesting point. I, I can see how that would be really useful. And, and uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's such, it's a trip. It's like the way that our brains relate with the written word is a different kind of, aesthetic and conversation and at the same time with poetry especially I feel like when you can train your eye to your ear so to speak mm-hmm. and then you can train your eye and your ear and your body then you can look at a poem on the page and get with it 
in a hearing sense and a movement sense at the same time. But that's part of what we're trying to um, share with the world and invite people into because it's not the way we're trained to read. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me just add to that. Um, God, it's such a, it's such a complicated thing comparing and contrasting your style with somebody else. But the thing that I want to bring in that um, how it's called different is we we look to cultivate a circle quality within our groups. We we like to before a before a a performance before an, an an event we you know we get people warmed up not in the like we're talking to you and you're laughing and you're emotionally responding but people mm-hmm. are like there's there's a more of a conversation going on it's like a group group feel experience feel rather than just performer audience mm-hmm. Yeah, and you really and get them in touch with that, so that you you because I think that's really important. It's like a hey, you're part of this too. Just as a reminder that you're not watching TV, you know, it's it's just exactly. a good like kind of just check in. Yeah, and the more and it's really true on an energetic level. The more that people's bodies are open, the more powerful the performance can be. Yeah. So we actually need them to be open and engaged to to help amplify what it is we're co-creating. Yeah. I I like to bring in a I like to bring in some element of physicality in the first in, in like shared physicality in the first speaking with the audience. Like I, if I can get the audience members or just invite them, some people can just sit there, but to like touch their heads and tap on their bellies just to just to remind them that they're there, yeah, and just to take just to take the experience back into their body, just even for a second, and then they can just look at me and <laughs> listen. But the poems come from in there, and they're gonna land best if you're feeling them. Mm-hmm. And, and so I like to invite that. Yeah, that's that's one of the reasons that. Well, I and I do, and I, that's actually one of the reasons I love slam poetry is because they, the audiences seem to get that there is, and then oh. there's something also in black culture where where people are just a part of it, like they're mm-hmm. they're oh, yeah. a part they're a part of it whether you like it or not, you know, and I love that, and so it's I also love playing music for those kind of audiences too because. Um, you know, when I do something, I mean, it's just like, it's like being with a woman. It's like, she's gonna, she's gonna give you the like, you know, great feedback if you do something great. And if you don't do something great, like it's going to really be clear as well. And, Mm -hmm. and that's just awesome. I mean, it's so much fun to, to get Mm -hmm. that kind of feedback. And, and I really think it sharpens performance, you know, and and it's beautiful. Yeah. And it's, it's so, there is a way when you first asked the slam question, I sort of felt like, well, we're trying to bring some of that level of embodiment to yeah. something other than black American urban culture. Yeah. And it, it, it's almost like uh, inviting a different audience into the conversation. And maybe the audience comes because they love poetry and they studied it in college or they really like David White and Mary Oliver and they're part of the transformational communities in the Bay Area. And it's it's just a nice, invitation into something different for, mm-hmm. for the academically literary analysis minded types and for the transformational community yeah. types that mm-hmm. think thinking is evil, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Especially for the literary analysis folks. I mean, I, I, I like slam. I've, I've watched slam videos for as long as there's been YouTube. And I, um, I think that there's a, I think there's a a different kind of vibration that that starts to teach that certainly taught me about poetry from getting out of the academic mind of there's a poem that has a secret meaning that you have to decipher and then you have to write a clever paper about it. So it's a, it, it makes for a complicated kind of, uh, it, it's like there's a complicated set of things that I think need to be disentangled from 
academically trained English literature world stuff that um, that were certainly in me that I had to overcome in order to allow myself to freely write poetry that meant something to me and may have been a may have been bad from some sort of you know English teacher perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so I got another question. Um, what, you guys talked about a few sort of quirky processes about this, the, the way you write, the way you edit. And I'm curious to hear uh, maybe a few more. Like, what are some other thing, quirky things you do? Let's say I was just, I was watching you create and what would I notice <laughs> that may be really interesting? Yeah, I mean, I think we should both answer this one because we have different quirks. But... Oh, for sure. Um, one of the ones for me is I do, I do a lot of the poems happen a lot for me when I'm out and about on walks or just being in my day or it's, it's, it's kind of funny. I, I tend to get inspired by a lot of the minutia of life. I remember I'm sitting at my desk right now and there's a, there's a blind right next to me and there's a knot in the blind that I didn't untie for the first six months being at this desk because I was too lazy to take 30 seconds to do that. And it kept me from seeing the shadow below my window. And all of a sudden that became a whole poem. And so there's this funny way of relating with these sort of symbolic minutia of life. So for me, poetry is, is not a thing I do. It's a way of being, and it's a way of relating with the world that says, you know, there's magic, there's meaning, there's symbolism, there's aliveness and mystery. And I am going to accept the uh, sort of Sisyphean task of trying to circle around these magical moments of life that are always mm-hmm. indescribable with words. Mm-hmm. And there's this, so there's this, for me, this love affair and way of being that's, that's part of it. Um, practical things. I use Evernote for everything these days. Mm, I me per- too. perform off of my Evernote um, using my iPad. Um, so that's one little bit. And yeah, Andrew, what are some of your oddities? Totally different. Um, <laughs> I operate, um, I, I do a lot of reading and scanning and taking in different ideas and poems and words and I just constantly running a dragnet for something that tickles me and hits a certain deep thing and I'm just always trying to figure things out and when I make time for myself I will typically do a whole bunch of physical energy practice stuff. It's Tai Chi or Qigong or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, I, and that's not something that you do with an intention or I do with an intention to uh, have words come out of it. But often that will just open up the energy in my body so that all of a sudden I just have to stop and sit down and write. Mm -hmm. And everything that I do is written, handwritten into little moleskin notebooks. I mean, that's, that's my, that's just my format. And I, I I take the train to work. So I write on the train a lot to just digest stuff too. And I would love to take a train to work. I feel like that is such an awesome time to do so many things. Fantastic. How how long is the ride? You take the part? I know I I take the Caltrain and I, yeah, I write, I write about, it's about a 40 minute ride. That's perfect. It's it's (laughs) ideal. It's (laughs) ideal. I sit down, I could just, you know, I I could, I could just have a poem just show up and then, uh, and then be done with it and, and go home and eat dinner. Sometime in the last couple of years, Amtrak started this program where they um, you can apply as a writer to be like an Amtrak-sponsored writer, and you can just ride for free all around the country as a writer. <laughs> what? <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. Wait. I don't know if it's still going on. You should look it up, though. So, wait, I just... I mean, why would they do that? How does that even work? I mean... It was a promotional thing, I think, to inspire people to 
take the train more. And everybody talks about riding on the train as this romantic, wonderful thing. And so they said, well, let's do this little pilot program. Nice. And yeah. so the the idea would be if you won, you just ride trains just for the sake of riding trains. You wouldn't actually even go anywhere. Or you just like, or you'd... it's like fighter retreat on a train nice. around the country. <laughs> I love. Oh my that. God. I love that idea. Wait, so this I is because you can airplanes actually, but same idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually I think, and I don't know. I think, I think Amtrak has, a, they have like a monthly pass thing, right? Where you can pay like 200 bucks or something and ride as much as you want for a month yeah, or something. Sure. It, that would be such a cool thing to do as a writer where you could just be like, all right, I'm going to just go on a tour of the U.S. and write. And, but I'm just, yep. you know, everywhere I go, I'm going to go with trains. That's brilliant. I think, I think we just heard Buddha's next inspiration. <laughs> I got so excited there. I was like, what? <laughs> that is awesome. Uh, Bali. <laughs> yeah. There's no trains in Bali, man. Yeah. Um, the Great Plains will really inspire you, I'm sure. Totally. Yeah. And it's like, it just, this, yeah, so many good things about that. Wow, I love that. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, cool. So my last question, and and um, I'd love for you guys to answer this individually, is um, if you could write yourself a note and you could slip that note back in time um, to yourself, and the note was about you know about about your writing and your poetry and your work, um, what point in your life would you would you slip the note back to, and what would the note say? Whoever That's a good question. I, here's what I'll say. Here's here's what I'll, I'll jump in on that. Um, because I feel, I actually feel, as you say that, I start to feel very protective of the naivete in my work and mm. the innocence, which and the the whole process of identifying as a poet, birthing yourself as a poet, is a is a process of reclaiming your innocence because you're you're allowing a non-strategic voice to emerge. Mm -hmm. You're allowing a voice to emerge which is unplanned and just sort of happens and maybe kind of weak and may not know the right thing to say because you're you're talking from a deep place and mm -hmm. you're speaking in its own language. So there's no advice that I would give to my earlier self that before I became a poet. I became a poet at what I think as the time when poetry found me, and mm -hmm. I, I'm cool with that. Uh, people wanted to have poetry find them. I just say, just take in a lot of poetry and wrap your world in it, and and mm -hmm. then in the space to it, and it will find you. But with a note that I would write would be to my poet self when after I started having a lot more work together and there have been a number of times and I continue to play with this where I just felt like it had to be heard more, it had to be received more, it had to be seen more and I just started doing all kinds of things to make it seem more acceptable, make it seem more appealing in a mass market way, make it more saleable on the web. And, and so like every time really that led down a, a dead end creatively that mm -hmm. led down a way that had me feeling less connected to the source of my poems. Mm -hmm. So, so the note to myself would be, Oh, Hey, you are mixing too much ambition into your poetic process. You need to back off and just let the poems be what they want to be. Nice. And what, what point would you send that to you? About a year and a half ago. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. Mm. And about you, Brooking? Uh, it's a hard question. Well crafted question, but right, uh, crafting it over the over the episodes every time. Yeah, so. <laughs> um, I feel like there's a version of myself that shows up over time, and like I mentioned, I I noticed her at age 22 or 23 in the journal I mentioned earlier, and and also at age probably 16, I remember this moment where I was feeling lit up, and it is to me it's that poetic space, and I remember thinking to myself, I don't want to let the fire die when I get older. 
Like, I, I don't mm-hmm. want to lose this fire. And I'd probably send her a note and said, keep writing, you won't. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then the other piece that comes to mind is there's this Joe's Joyce Carol Oates quote that just crossed my desk this week. The beginning of art is when you resist the mold. Mm. Nice. And I tell myself that one every day. <laughs> yeah. And just that willingness to trust that the process is, is a process of self-discovery and is of value to the world at the same time. I love that. That's an amazing quote. Mm-hmm. It's so true. And such that's that's really how I've felt like a creative person my whole life is I I used to call it I used to just say I was really lazy (laughs) and it's like well I'm gonna be creative because I need another alternative than whatever this mold is and Mm -hmm. it just turns out that the mode I would pick would usually be more fun or shorter or quicker and so that's why I would do it and but yeah really that's great Mm. well thank you you guys Um, I'm gonna include links everything we talked about in the show notes at darkenthepage.com and uh, Henry Jack you have a Pinterest page uh, pinterest.com slash Henry underscore Jack and um, a few others that we'll link to and Brooking you can be found at the art at at art of honesty not the art of honesty artofhonesty.com I remember because we came up with that I think together Um, and yeah many years ago ago, we we put on a workshop called the art of honesty and then we uh like reg to the domain name shortly after um and thank you guys so much for sharing this and i, I ran away with it. <laughs> you ran away with it. no it, and it was it was i was happy to watch this thing go off i was like yes go go um but yeah i, I really appreciate he, i truly learned a lot about the this bar tradition and a, a new way of looking at poetry from hearing from you guys um so thank you so much for sharing that and, and really opening up my world. Yeah, thank you for asking. It's always fun. to. We love to talk about poetry. It's so. a pleasure. <laughs> it is a great pleasure. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Thanks. And where can people find your events if they want to come to the next Bards Night Out thing? Um, we have a Facebook group, actually. Um, Bards Night Out. I think out. it's just called Bards Night Out, and I, you probably have to ask to be invited at this point. Where, but yeah, just ask me or go to my website. My website has all the upcoming events, and you can join my newsletter, and I will share it that way as well. Nice, nice, awesome. Well, thank you too, and, and look forward to talking to you soon. <laughs>